I'm going to ask uh, Don to come up here. There's a uh, parable that uh, Jesus told, and uh, for, for the message this morning, we're going to look at Luke's account of Palm Sunday. But Luke has put this parable just before, and it really relates to the meaning of uh, Palm Sunday. So, Don, you'll read for us from, uh, from Luke uh, 19, starting at verse 11. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king, and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. Thank, thank you, Don. Appointed king, and then he went away, and then he came back. Certainly relates to the occasion of Palm Sunday. What about it? Is it a is it a time of sadness or is it a time of celebration? Is it about the jubilant welcome that Jesus received as he rode into Jerusalem? Or is it about anticipating what's going to happen in just five days? Uh, there's uh, ambivalence here because Jesus is being loudly praised here. He's lauded as king. And yet we know that in just five days, many, maybe of the same people, I don't know, many people will be crying, crucify him, crucify him. I draw your attention to the sharp contrast between uh, verse 37, 38, and then verse 41. In uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 37, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. And then verse 38, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Verses 37 and 38 of Luke 19. And then in verse 41, just three, four verses down. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Where does that leave us? Where there's such a, a jubilant praise of him as king. And then also even in this section, the signal that it's not all good, and that he's going to be rejected. Well, I'd like, to, I'd like to frame my thoughts this morning around these three questions that I'll try to answer. Very simple, very, very simple outline here. 
I'm uh, known as being simple, okay? And here's a simple outline. But uh, the first question being, what's going on? And the second one, what does it mean? And then thirdly, what does it mean for us today? But beginning with what is going on, it's Passover and Jerusalem and the whole surrounding area crowded with pilgrims. There was a law actually within Judaism that every adult male Jew who lived within 20 miles of Jerusalem was expected to come to the Passover. But not only those who were within 20 miles, but Jews from every corner of their world would make their way to the greatest of national festivals, the Passover. One writer tells us that at Passover time, more than two and a half million people, more than two and a half million people crowded their way into Jerusalem. Well, we had the Matthew section read earlier, and uh, here in uh, Luke it's quite similar. Jesus sends two of his disciples to bring a colt, a colt that's never been ridden, unbroken, and yet the animal remains calm. That in itself is something to ponder. And as Jesus rides toward the city on this donkey, the people spreading clothes and tree branches across the road for him. And they are shouting praises and adoration to him. And it's significant that Jesus accepts this jubilant praise. And so here in this ride into Jerusalem, he is publicly affirming in a way that he hasn't up till now, publicly affirming that he is the Messiah. And notice here how his kingship, the kingship part of being Messiah, is, is emphasized. Uh, Don read for us from verse 12 in that parable. There it talks about a, a nobleman who is going to be appointed king. Verse 12, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king. And then verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. All this jubilant praise happening. Verse 37, his disciples, uh, I don't know how many, but keep, keep in mind that disciples is not the same as apostles. Uh, there were 12 apostles within the group of disciples, but probably several hundred here. But it talks about his, his disciples. The whole multitude of his disciples, they are praising him joyfully. But, but, some of the Pharisees are not amused and they protest. Verse 39, uh, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Rebuke them. And at this point, he makes this statement. He will not budge on this. He says, if these were silent... If these were silent, the stones would cry out. It's like he's saying that this is such a high moment of destiny that if the disciples were silenced, then lifeless stones would take up the refrain. Creation must in some shape or form bear witness to the momentous occasion. 
Someone has paraphrased like this. He says that the, the, the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not accept their true king, but the very stones of which the city was built, they do. Yeah. Praise, adulation, homage. I think we've captured some of that this morning in our singing, honoring him as king um, and anticipating the day when he will reign in his kingdom. But even as we sang, Hosanna, Hosanna, a couple of versions of it. And then we sang, O glory, laud, and honor to the Redeemer King. And I appreciate Adriel. Uh, I offered that maybe we could sing that song, and she, had, she didn't really know it, and so that was okay. We don't have to sing it. Then she listened to it and said, I like it. I like it. And I'm sure that there are people around the world, many English-speaking churches today, singing that very song, to glory, laud, and honor to thee, Redeemer King, to whom the lips of children make sweet hosannas ring. And then later we plan to sing, Rejoice, the Lord is King, your Lord and King adore. What's going on? Well, he is being public about the fact that he is the Messiah. So there's excitement, there's jubilation, and he is welcoming all that praise. But that's not all that's going on. There's also signs of rejection. Pharisees, rebuke your disciples. And then as he nears the city, it says that he wept. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Why? Last part, he says, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. It was a time of God's visitation, special visitation upon Israel and upon Jerusalem. But they did not recognize it. They didn't respond to it. And so he's weeping over Jerusalem because he sees what's going to happen. The city's going to be judged. And he describes some of the things that's going to happen here. The days will come upon you and your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and then and hem you in on, hem you in on every side. And uh, they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. While we are on the other side of history, we can look back at that. In 70 AD, the city fell with the attendant horror. The final siege and fall of Jerusalem formed one of the most terrible stories in all of history. According to Josephus, historian, 97,000 Jews were taken captive by the Romans and more than one million died during the siege by the sword or by slow starvation. We hear about horrors today and well, prominent, I think, in the news and in our minds is what's going on in Syria. And it's, it's horrendous. But we go back to this. And it, in terms of numbers, it was even greater Rejection of God's way has consequences. His plan for people is for their best, for their flourishing. 
and when we reject his ways, we are the losers. I'm grateful for what our workers are doing with our young people. It seems almost unfortunate that the, the decisions that people make between, let's say, the ages of about 16 and 32 have such lifelong consequences. And if we can somehow help our youth so that they will be wise and they will make good decisions during those years that are so decisive. Wow, what a, what a wonderful thing. See, God wants his best for us. Young people, be aware of that. God wants the very best for it. And so follow him early in life and make good decisions according to the wisdom that he, he gives you. But if we, we, if we reject Jesus as Lord and Savior, we, we receive instead condemnation. And if we go contrary to his ways in the way we live life, we experience all kinds of uh, terrible consequences. And notice how Jesus feels about people experiencing these consequences. He weeps. His heart is broken because they're going to have to reap what they have sown. Our Lord does not change the law of the harvest. What we sow is what we reap. There's a verse in Psalms 81, 11 and 12 that relate to the same principle but my people would not listen to me. Israel would not submit to me, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own ways. Wow. Follow their own ways. What's going on here? Well, there's the affirmation of him being the Messiah and its kingly aspect. And yet at the same time, there's rejection going on and rejection anticipated. Let's consider the second question. Well, what does it mean? What are the implications? And I note here that A, Jesus is presenting himself as the king here, but not his kingdom in its earthly reign. There's a difference here. He presents himself as king, but not as currently the reigning king or his kingdom. And that relates to what uh, Don read there in verse, verse 11 and 12. While they were listening, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. And that's part of it here. The king was being presented, the Messiah was being presented, but not the kingdom. And then he says, a man of noble birth went, uh, noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return, you see. Yeah. The king is here. He presents himself, but not his earthly reigning kingdom. King is coming, and then the kingdom. They were, there were various expectations in, within Judaism of what, what they really expected, what you know, about the Messiah, and a prominent one was that he would be a nationalistic Messiah who would reign politically, and he would restore the kingdom back to Israel. 
and Jesus did not meet their expectations. He did not come to remove the Roman yoke. And here, as we look beyond the enthusiasm of the crowds, there are signals already that his mission is different than what they had expected. For one thing, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, which would indicate humility and a mission of goodwill. An aggressor who was going to take over the kingdom against the Romans would have come on a war horse instead of instead he rides on a donkey. And also, that goes contrary to the expectations. What is the first thing that's recorded here in Luke that Jesus does after the triumphal entry? Well, he confronts the religious establishment. Official Judaism, he drives out the money changers. First thing that comes up. And so Jesus continued to experience antagonism from many of the Pharisees as he kept on challenging their assumptions. This was Passover week, which celebrates the Jewish people's liberation from Egyptian slavery. And the pilgrims now anticipate the messianic liberation from Rome's oppression. But Jesus' mission is a different kind of liberation. Instead of redemption for the, for the Jews from the Roman oppressors and establishing an earthly kingdom, he's going to redeem a people to himself from all nations, not just Israel, all nations, and a people who will live a kingdom kind of life while resident on the kingdoms of this world. And so the call of his people then is to give allegiance to him, even as they look, even as we look for him to come back again. But that meant he would have to die on the cross. And so that's part of this too. We anticipate Good Friday, paying the price of redemption and reconciliation. Why did they miss it? Why did they miss it? Some of it was wrong expectations. And yet consider that even his apostles were thinking that way, and yet they didn't. They deserted him temporarily, but overall they stuck with him. The 11 of them did. But they had similar expectations, remember? Before he ascended, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And so that expectation even included the 11. And so that was part of it, why they missed it. They had wrong expectations. But you know, I suggest something else that is at the very heart of rejection. And it's what's at the heart of rejection today. And it's what we see in that parable. That Don read for us, verse 14. We don't want this man to be our king. I think that's at the heart. I think that's the heart of all rejection, really. We want to be autonomous. We want to run our own lives. Thank you very much. And you see, with that kind of a posture, then you're really, your heart, your eyes are not really focused in such a way that you're ready to take it all in and to, and, and, and to, to, to hear God's message to you, to really hear. Why did they miss it? Maybe it was that sense of autonomy. I want, to be, I want to be my own boss. 
so often the motiv motivation behind rejection of Jesus Lord well that relates to the third question what does it mean for us and I begin by saying the most basic significance is the identity of Jesus as the king who reigns over the church and wants to reign over each of our lives Jesus as the risen Lord Palm Sunday shows that he's the king well he's the king he wants to be the king over our lives the risen Lord is at the very center of the gospel and we see this in the book of Acts when they started to preach the gospel what 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 was the core of it what was at the very center Jesus is the risen Lord and he is the rightful Lord not Caesar not anyone else no unknown God but Jesus Christ Peter and his Pentecostal sermon sermon therefore let all Israel be assured of this that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified he's speaking to the Jewish audience at that point whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah further on in Acts chapter 10 verse 36 you know the message of God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ who is Lord of all and then there's another place and and these are the these are the opponents and they're talking about Christians they're talking about those who are followers of the way and this is what they say about them they are all defying Caesar's decrees saying that there is another king one called Jesus that was the gospel especially you know I, I think sometimes we I, I think we err just a little bit that somehow we think at the very heart of the gospel is that he died for our sins and that is at the heart of the gospel but the most important response is to respond to that and yes but I would say that's not quite as important if you can <laughs> you know if you can have prioritize as recognizing that he's the Lord the Lord of your life the risen Lord and out of that he died for our sins so we can be forgiven but that's central and that's the essence and of course the essence of sin really is is this very thing I want to do things my way my way we don't want this man to be king so then what about Palm Sunday is it celebration or is it sadness is it about him reigning or is it about him being rejected well of course it's both right it's about him being king but it's about him being the Redeemer King the Redeemer King and that means by his reigning his reigning comes by way of the cross no cross no crown he could not reign without conquering the enemy the popular assumption was that the enemy was Rome but the cross demonstrate that the enemy is sin sin in both the heart and sin in the actions and you know we see so much horror today in our world evil it's and it's so easy to pronounce it as absolute evil the heavy slaughter as I mentioned in Syria slaughters by Isis 
One example is Nigeria. As recently as October 2016, as recently as a year and a half ago, Christianity documented this. Boko Haram has killed more than 20,000 people since 2009, making it the world's deadliest terror group. We don't hear as much about them as we do about the others. But they too, terrorist group with all that evil. But you know, I think what is not adequately recognized by Christians as well as others is that sin, the potential for evil, is in every heart. We all have some of that. There's that germ form, that seed form in every human heart. Fleming Rutledge, Episcopalian, written a wonderful book called The Bible and the New York Times. The Bible and what a title in itself. Somehow relating what God's Word says to what's going on in the world. And then she talks about Palm Sunday. She says there was a uh, she once knew a woman who wouldn't come to church on Palm Sunday because of something that was in their Palm Sunday liturgy where the congregation has to reci- recite out loud, crucify him, part of their liturgy. And she says this woman couldn't stand being asked to shout, crucify him. And then she goes on to say, I remember her exact words, I just can't do it. It was very important to her to think of herself as one of the righteous people. She could not confront her own darkness and how sad that is. Now I'm saying, you know, I think probably I would have a difficulty with that too if it was sprung on me. But if I grew up in the Anglican church, that'd be different. I'd understand it and I'd understand the meaning of it. And the meaning of it simply is that, hey, we're part of this. We were part of crucifying our Lord because he died for us. And so that sort of comes home then, of course, when that becomes part of their liturgy. I'm not recommending that at all, but I'm understanding it, okay? And she's saying it's very sad. And then she goes on to say that most people have difficulty with the concept of sin. Being a Christian leads us into recognizing that each of us, including myself, sins in thought, word, and deed on a daily basis. And then she leaves preaching and she gets into meddling here. This is very uncomfortable. She gives examples of the expression of sin in my life. Busyness, lack of patience, failure to be thoughtful, a sharp tongue, are all evidence of our sinful nature. Don't you agree? Yeah, see, it's there. It's part of us. Redeemer King, <laughs> both. And that part, that means the Redeemer part means that we respond to His ongoing grace, owning that, yes, I too, I too am still a sinner. That's Redeemer King but it also speaks of him being the Redeemer King, the risen Lord to whom we give our allegiance, where we are surrendered to his agenda. And I suggest that the danger for most of us today is not that we might simply, it's not that we're going to reject him the way an atheist might. 
more likely we reject his terms and we make up our own, you know. For example, I believe in a Jesus who is love but will never judge anybody. Or I want the good luck charm kind of a Jesus. Or I want the just in case kind of a Jesus, you know. The one that I can call on in an emergency. Or I want the kind of Jesus who will make me prosper in all that I do. I want the icing on the cake kind of Jesus who just makes all of life a little better, just sprinkle a little bit of religion into my way of life to, you know, to sort of make it more meaningful, okay? Or I want a cafeteria menu Jesus where I can cherry-pick some parts of Christianity that I like. But you see, in any of those examples, we who would be followers have reversed the roles. We have written Messiah's script. And the result... Frankly, we rejected him as he is. Even as official Judaism rejected him just after Palm Sunday. As those who follow King Jesus, we are called to follow him as he is. And we are called to be faithful to the gospel as it is, and that it, which reflects who he is. So how do we do that? How do we follow him well? Do we wait until we reach perfection? Do we strive for perfection? And I say, no, it's not a good goal. It's not going to happen, right? It's just not going to happen. But rather, we reflect his call by becoming especially known as people of mercy. We have received mercy. That's what sets us apart. We have received grace. That's what sets us apart. And so in following him, we become known as people of mercy and compassion and grace. Living under the cross in what is called cruciform lives, where we, where we deny self, take up the cross, and become known as people who sacrifice for others. Jesus sacrificed for us. We sacrifice for others. We serve them. We help them to flourish. We exercise we express the Jesus kind of love towards them servants of reconciliation and healing of brokenness and in doing that we're working towards the very objective that he is going to fully accomplish when he returns you know we may wonder well what's the point of working towards something because we get so far behind and when he comes he's going to put it all together all at once there's an analogy that came to me that uh, goes back to my farming days. And uh, I don't know if it's still true, but certainly when I was growing up, you know, you had these small farmers who were able to look after a quarter section maybe, and then you had the big farmers. And, and now I'm just going to imagine a certain scenario. Here you have that small farmer doing his thing and, and you know inevitably he doesn't get it quite done and then one of these big farmers comes along and he scoops up all his grain in just, uh, just an afternoon and puts it in the bin for him and you might sort of wonder why should the small farmer even try to finish his, his work because somebody else is going to come and help him at the end anyway and we might think that way with the Lord why should we even try to make things better because we're going to fail at it but he's going to come and he's going to do it all. Well, we have to. We're called to be like him. We're called to work towards his goal. And the very fact that he's going to come and complete it 
doing away with sin, doing away with the consequences, the pain, and we are helping to alleviate pain now, why should we bother? Because we're doing what he's going to be doing in, in a maximum way. And it's our way of being faithful to him, working towards what he will complete when he returns. I agree with John Stackhouse when he wrote, he says, the lesson of Palm Sunday is that Jesus refuses to be co-opted by our programs and preferences. I like that. He refuses to be co-opted by our programs and references. He turns instead and bids men and women everywhere to follow me, follow him. He dismisses our priorities. He lets them all get nailed to a cross to die. And he still has the audacity to expect us to follow him and pursue his quest instead. He refuses to be co-opted because after all, he is the king.